Welcome to All About Literacy. We've invited Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry to this podcast episode to speak with us about literacy instruction for adolescents. Between the two of them, Nancy Fry and Doug Fisher have led more than 1,000 in-services and written 40 professional books and programs across K-12. You've heard that right, 1,040. They are professors at San Diego State University in educational leadership and focus on policies and practices in literacy and school leadership. For over two decades, their work has been dedicated to the knowledge and skills of caring teachers and school leaders needed to help students attain their goals and aspirations. Their shared interests include instructional design, curriculum development, and professional learning. They are co-authors of articles and books on literacy and leadership, including Improving Adolescent Literacy, Visible Learning for Literacy, and In a Reading State of Mind. So Doug and Nancy, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. So for about the next 25 minutes or so, we're going to take turns asking you some questions. How does that sound? That sounds great. Reasonable to me. Awesome. All right. So we're going to start. And this one, we're hoping you both will speak to just because it's a more individual question. We'd love to hear what sparked your passion for literacy instruction. And Doug, maybe if you would start and then Nancy, if you follow up. Sure. I was a freshman in college. I always kind of knew I wanted to be a teacher. That's been part of my life for since a child. But in in my freshman year, I took a college comp class and we were assigned topics and I was assigned illiteracy. And I had to write an entire college comp, the entire semester. That was the one thing we had to write in all these different parts and things. And I really learned a lot about illiteracy, but even more importantly, I learned about illiteracy. And it set me on a journey of figuring out why people couldn't read and why they didn't read if they could. And I've spent the rest of my life trying to figure out this answer of how do we make sure people have access to amazing information? I believe that literacy is the best antidote to poverty that we have at our disposal. It changes your life, it makes your health outcomes better, the quality of life goes up. There's so much evidence about what this does for you, individually and globally. My journey was similar in some ways to Doug, and but also different in other ways. My mom was a teacher. I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. And my first credential was in working with students with intellectual disabilities. And as a new teacher, I was a brand new teacher at that time, what I quickly realized is that I didn't know enough about literacy. I had a a great teacher preparation program, but I realized that there were challenges that I was seeing and I didn't know how to address them. And what that set me on a path to was going back and getting my master's degree with a concentration in reading in order to be able, quite frankly, to learn more about how to better serve my students. That was my kind of entry point into the world of literacy. Nancy and Doug, I love how both of those stories really come out of personal experiences and personal authentic questions that you had and things that you found interesting and intriguing. And I love how that models for our pre-service teachers and for others. We don't have to go far to find these passions or where we might 
find ourselves being called. And oftentimes it's right around us or things that come out of authentic experiences that we have. So thank you so much for sharing that. Nancy, drawing a little bit on what you just said, in your experiences with working with secondary teachers, what are some of the common misconceptions about literacy? And you referenced the fact that you had to learn a lot about literacy, but as both of you reflect on working with teachers and pre-service teachers over the years, what are some misconceptions as we think about texts or text complexity or literacy strategies? You can answer it however, whichever way you'd like, but what are some of those that you've encountered over the years? I think one of the important ones, it has to do with what literacy looks like in different disciplines, that very often literacy, it can be bracketed into being something just that the English teacher does without necessarily an appreciation for how important literacy is in science, in math, in the arts, et cetera, et cetera. So this idea of discipline-specific literacies, I think is a, a widely held misconception beyond oh, I assign the kids a, an essay that they have to every quarter or something like that. So for me, that's one of the major misconceptions. Doug, I'm wondering about things that you consider when you think about secondary teachers' misconceptions. Some people believe that literacy is already developed by the time they get there, or should have been, or that it's the job of the English teachers rather than it is a collective responsibility. <clears throat> Several years ago, I wrote that we should stop saying Every teacher is a teacher of reading. And I know that was a popular phrase for a while in the secondary world. And I, I was confronted when someone said, is every teacher a teacher of algebra? And I thought about this and I, my response was, I'm not sure that every teacher can be a teacher of algebra, but even algebra teachers use language, reading, writing, speaking, and listening. So maybe we should say learning is based in language and all of us have responsibility for mobilizing language, reading, writing, speaking, and listening and viewing in our secondary classes. And I think that every teacher is a teacher of reading, you're a physics teacher and you're thinking, I don't know what they mean when they say phonics. I don't know what, how do I build fluency? And that intimidated people and they didn't like feeling like they didn't know stuff. So then building on that, Doug, maybe if you could speak to thinking about, so that sounds like it's a potential barrier. So, um, Wondering about for secondary teachers, what are some of the common barriers that they encounter when they're trying to improve literacy in, in their classrooms and in their subject areas? So I think I think one of the barriers are, are the range of instructional strategies. We have to commit that students are reading in almost every class every day. I mean, we set a goal at our school where we work that there's some aspect of reading that occurs, whether you're in a career technical class, an arts and PE class, history, there is some kind of interaction with text on a daily basis. And that they're going to discuss these texts. And so I think there's, how do we get the strategies that get students into reading? And then we have to have conversations about what are they reading? How long are the readings? What do they do with the readings? So there's a lot of work to do about that. So once you set a value that says, Texts serve a primary purpose in our learning. Scientists read things, historians read things. And how do we set that as a central, one central part of our class? And then what do we do with the text once we have accepted that? And then when students really struggle with reading, what kinds of things do we do? Unfortunately, sometimes we just tell them what's in the text. And rather than have scaffolds and supports, uh, for them to access a complex piece of text. So I think those are some of the barriers. 
Uh, and then I've already named the one where I think there are people who, who genuinely believe that literacy is the responsibility of elementary school teachers. And if students in secondary schools aren't already literate, there should be someone else who takes care of that. I would add too, and, and building on what Doug had to offer on that last point, that a barrier as well is that for students who arrive at the middle school or high school level, and they are not yet at those expected levels of how it is that we think about literacy, that for many teachers, not, not only content area teachers, but English teachers as well, there is a, a loss of what it is that we should do. In other words, if they didn't show up in the class, already reading at about grade level, then I don't know how to be able to create those on-ramps to be able to help them access those more complex pieces of text. And it is a, an issue and a challenge that lots of very caring secondary teachers face because on the one hand, they know that the texts are really important for students to be able to access but as Doug noted, they don't yet have that bridge about how it is that you scaffold and provide access for those more complex pieces of text. Thank you so much for that, Nancy. I love that, that phrase on ramps. And as we think about that, one topic that Erica and I talk about with our students is this notion of text complexity. And so we take our students on a journey of saying, hey, texts are integral to all of our disciplines. We encounter texts in all of them. It isn't just reading an essay or writing an essay, but then having them think about what kinds of your students encounter in your class and how do you think about the complexities of those texts as well as how do we maybe differentiate and provide different learners with different, different complexities of text. And so getting our, some of our students to think about that. And so related to that, what do you wish or how have you helped teachers think more about this notion of text complexity and thinking about how then to provide these on-ramps or differentiation for students at these different levels? Of One of the major ways that we hopefully are able to draw attention to that is by making sure that they get lots of experiences with their own complex pieces of text. And in other words, not just teaching about how important it is that you have complex text, but actually putting them in the seat of the learner and exposing them to examples from their curriculum, from their discipline of complex text and letting them go through those processes. So that becomes a, an experience that they have, not just something that they've heard about. I think that those experiential uh, kinds of activities are an important first stop in being able to create those opportunities for them and to move beyond simply handing a student a piece of text and kind of hoping for the best. I would add on that things like when you're doing your teacher modeling and you're using a primary source document and history as an example, the text should be way more complex. When we're doing a close reading where we're going to slow down and we're going to go deep into this text and we're going to reread it and we're going to talk about all these questions that we have, the text will be more complex. And then there are times when we're using text sets. Like here's a big question we have in history. Here are five different things that we could read to help us understand this question. Or we're exploring this idea of biomes. Here are 10 different sources to help you think about a biome in science. <clears throat> and you can read all of those. Years ago, we did the study on 
having 10 minutes a day devoted to wide reading. And we showed that in, in these content classes, if we had 10 minutes of the wide reading time on a constraint, it wasn't like free voluntary reading, it was constrained. So we're learning about friction, momentum, potential energy, kinetic energy, all that stuff. Here's a box of things to read. <clears throat> Each day you need to read some stuff. What we noticed is many of the students would pick easier things to read in the beginning because they didn't have a lot of background knowledge. But as they knew more, they read more complex things. And their scores on the state assessment were significantly higher in the sections that devoted a few minutes to reading, building background knowledge, building vocabulary. So the amazing lessons that those teachers provided could actually get in because the background knowledge and the vocabulary was solid. And we tracked what happens and the selections the students made. And the students naturally chose more complex text as their background knowledge grew. So that is really, it's one of those things that it makes sense that sometimes teachers don't think about what they can do in terms of being able to give students access to text. And I think to your point, Doug, even that some of that choice. So even if it's a, if it's bound by it's teacher selected and, and here's your box, but there's still some choice in that or voice and choice that students can have. And that of course there's empowerment there, which is really helpful versus we're all going to read this article about biomes and we're going to highlight together and we're, you know, which you can do. There's a place for that at times, but the, the diversity of text I think is really important. So I'm curious as we're thinking about the, the idea of text complexity and then text selection, as you've worked with a number of teachers, secondary teachers over um, time, and this is across disciplines, what are some of those aha moments where you've seen teachers like the light bulb goes on and they recognize or understand what they can do to help students access text or to help them think about the complexities of it? I'm thinking even especially like music teachers, art teachers, PE, like how do you, when you work with them and they get it, what is it that they're getting and how do they think about giving students access to lots of text in their discipline? I think one of the breakthroughs is the text has to match your content, your learning expectations. And I think in the past, there was a perception they had to help the English teachers. And so it wasn't like, wow, you can do a study of all these different artists and having kids read about what influenced this artist's life, or you could have them reading about different techniques and how light and perspective and lines are used. There's a wide range of things you can that you can read. Years ago, a former school we worked at, we, there was a teacher that was in charge of woodworking and he was beloved, the, the kids loved him, but there was no reading in his class. There was no, there was no text present. And so I spent some time with him and his, his mindset was the text had to be from other classes. Ah, wait. So we started saying, so you're going to do a lesson on bias in cutting, which I didn't know was an angle kind of thing. I thought bias, how popular that I think about it. And I said, I don't know this use of the word, but I'm sure there are things we could read that help us understand. He goes, oh yeah, there's a page in the woodworking manual about how you cut, how you know where the bias is and how you cut on the bias. And I said, couldn't they read that, annotate that? and then actually go cut against the bias and with the bias and see what happens. And he did it and he tried it. And to his credit, he said, best lesson. They actually read something and they immediately went out and I let them cut it the wrong way and the right way. And then we dropped the boards and we saw what happened. And all the ones that were cut the wrong way smashed apart and the ones that were cut correctly 
did not break when they were dropped on the floor. And he just said, I could have told them all of this, but they got to experience it based on something they read. I, I found that was like a huge win for us of the text have to be relevant and they have to be directly connected to the things you want students learning. And what Doug is really referencing is, especially in helping teachers to understand that uh, the text doesn't reside outside of and separate from the other things that they're doing in the class. And that you really build the relevancy and the purpose of a particular text when you did exactly what it was that the woodworking teacher did. Let's read about something and then let's try it out for ourselves. There's that immediate application. Now let's go back and look at the text again. The text becomes incredibly relevant. And from the teacher's standpoint, there's a real win there in deepening students' knowledge about the content that they're teaching. Such a great example, and our listeners can't see it, but Erica and I are like furiously jotting things down to include in our future lessons. Nancy and Doug, we've used your textbooks with our students over the years that we've been professors. It's wonderful to hear and to connect some of what you're saying to books we've read or chapters we've accessed. And so it's all the more exciting for Erica and I, in this moment to hear you guys say it out loud. Doug, I love that example of the wood, the wood class and the teacher in that class. When you share that example, and maybe even our listeners in this podcast are thinking, yeah, this is what I want to happen in my classroom. What are some resources or next steps that you have for teachers who maybe are inspired by even just listening to this um, podcast episode to say, hey, I, I want to do this better. I want to have better support or resources for going forward as I think about literacy in my secondary discipline. Sure. So we have a website, fisherandfry.com, A-N-D spelled out, and her name is F-R-E-Y. I have no C in my name. So F-I-S-H-E-R-A-N-D-F-R-E-Y.com. Fisherandfry.com, we have all kinds of free resources for secondary teachers up there that have at them. There's a link to our YouTube channel. We have, I don't know, 60 or 70 videos of teacher friends of ours who let us film them all for free. If you're looking for a more cohesive book and you're a content teacher, I'd probably say Improving Adolescent Literacy is a book that has different content areas named in it, all, all people we know. And then <clears throat> I think if you're an English language arts person and you really want to push your thinking about comprehension, our newest book on comprehension, Skill, Will, and Thrill. How do we get students past the skill level of comprehending a text and into the will and thrill to comprehend a text? I'll build on that too. I think that for teachers to be a, a bit more aware of how it is that they are using literacies themselves, what it is that they're reading. And because of course, they're doing all of those things all the time. They're keeping up on their profession. They are reading up on a, a particular content areas. And to take that next step and say, oh, this is something I found interesting. I could use a part of this in my own classroom. I could talk with my students. Hey, I read this really interesting article over the weekend and it made me think of all of you because we were just talking about X, Y, or Z. Let me show you what it was and then sharing. That's such a powerful way to be able to invite students into their literacy lives. And it starts with an awareness, oh, there are things that I'm doing that my students might like as well. 
So building on that, we are hopefully, we're hopefully moving out of the COVID-19 pandemic at some point. We just, yeah, I'm, you can't see, our listeners can't see, we've got thumbs up and nods and smiles. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. And as educators, all four of us know that teaching is already challenging. It's rewarding and challenging, but a pandemic has really exacerbated some of those challenges for sure. And yet, and I'm so grateful for this, we have new teachers coming into the profession. They, got, they have chosen it. They, they're excited about it. And so many of the listeners are those new teachers heading into their classrooms in the coming year, give or take. What advice and recommendations do you have for um, those who are new to the profession? I, I will start. Make sure that you are connected to your professional organization. If you are an English teacher, the International Literacy Association, the National Council of Teachers of English. If you're a math teacher, the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics and so on. Get connected to who your professional organizations are so that you can begin to build that network. It is amazing to be able to see on Twitter and in other spaces how those personal learning networks have really built out through social media. Get connected with all of them. The challenges that new teachers are confronted with are not challenges that are only at the individual level. Chances are very good that if you are asking a question of yourself, so are a whole lot of other people. And make sure that you are a part of those professional networks so that you don't have to do all of the thinking, all of the conceptualizing alone. You can really capitalize on what it is that others are experiencing. I would add uh, that I got some really bad advice in my teacher program, and that was don't smile until winter break. And I think that's terrible advice. Make amazing growth producing relationships with your learners. Let them know how much you care. Be kind, be humane with them. Because when students know you care, they will do things, they will learn, they will behave, they will engage, and they will start to share things about themselves that you, that will touch your heart for the rest of your life. And those kids are gonna come back to you and they're gonna to say to you, do you remember me? You were my teacher and it was your first year. Hold those memories in your heart because it's amazing. Develop those awesome relationships with young people because they need you. And if there was ever a time that those adolescents need you, it's now. Recovering from being isolated, not so connected to their social networks, their friends, they need us. And we're ready and we've got this. And thank you for joining the profession. It's amazing to be a teacher. Amen, amen to all of that. I just feel like a round of applause. Thank you, Nancy and Doug for that. We're, our episode is coming to an end and a tradition that Erica and I have at the end of each episode is to ask our guests a fun literacy question. And in the literacy courses we teach, uh, we talk about the importance of acknowledging, affirming and drawing on students out of school literacy practices. And Nancy, you already talked a little bit about how teachers need to model and be aware of our own literacy practices. And these out of school literacy practices can range, right? From pop culture use to hobbies, sports, religious, ethnic, racial groups that they actively participate in and enjoy. And so here's our question to both of you. What is one out of school literacy practice or community that you enjoy being? Live watch parties on Netflix. <laughs> that is awesome. Do you have a favorite show? Oh, Lucifer right now. 
because they just released seven more episodes. So I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> That's awesome. We get a lot of we get a lot of great feedback from our students. We start talking about particular shows or movies because so often there's fan clubs standing and intense groups around particular shows. So thank you. That's a good recommendation for many of us. But being in your house and chatting in real time as you watch the episodes at a watch party is so much fun. So you've got reading and writing, you've got viewing going on, you have listening going on, you're reacting to other, oh my gosh, what did he just say? And it's so much fun. I love reading graphic novels. Uh, my own grandkids, I connect with them, find out what's going on right now so that I can do that. Doug and I both live right here in San Diego, home of Comic-Con. We're hoping that Comic-Con will be back next year in 2022, but devoted and dedicated to graphic novels and love being able to explore those spaces. Oh, excuse me. So that is really fun because I think Doug, you're the first person we've interviewed that's talked about participating in live watch parties and Nancy as well. Comic-Con, certainly lots of pop culture pieces there, but the graphic novels and that you use that to connect with your grandkids is a, an, I think an extra, for us, that's extra fun. Deb and I are both part of a mother-daughter book club actually that Deb started a lot of years ago, and most of the girls this year are going to be seniors um, in high school. I think we started, Deb, when did, like, second grade, third grade, somewhere in there? Yeah, it's a long time ago. Yeah, and um, Deb also hosts the Mother-Son Book Club, and so we read lots of things, but it's the shared, like, it's the shared experiences around the text. Same thing, Doug, whether it's Lucifer or whatever other show you're watching, but there's a shared experience, which I think is, it's just, that's one of the things that makes literacy so important is that it is a shared experience and it allows us to connect and communicate with each other. Yep. So Doug and Nancy, thank you for joining us for today's episode. For those of you listening in, thank you for joining us as well. Be sure to follow All About Literacy and your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. We are Deb Van Dynan and Erica Hamilton, and we wish you beautiful adventures ahead. Mm -hmm.